But good morning and welcome to Daring Dialogues. I'm your host today, Shantae Charles. It is Wednesday, Relationship Wednesday, where we focus on all things relationship. Now, I don't know if you remember a time uh, in faith spaces that if you visited somewhere for the first time, they would say, you know, can all of the first time visitors stand, right? They was sometimes if, if it was a small enough congregation, they would ask you to state your name and where you're where you're coming from. And then people would get up and they would sing you a lovely welcome song to make you feel welcome in their space. Now, yeah, I think that might have been maybe early 90s culture of the faith community. I don't know too many people that are still um, too many faith communities that are still doing that. But I just heard that like the whole welcome song. So my welcome song to you is good morning. And wherever you are in the world, you might be looking at this in the evening time. But I hope that your morning goes well. So if you're just waking up, if you are already awake and starting your day, if you're heading out uh, into your evening time in the world, I hope that your next morning will be good. All right. I want to tell you about something that happened yesterday. And this is specifically for black people. This part is specifically for black people, but it really can apply to anybody. I was out yesterday and I was getting some, uh, running some errands and I had to stop by the grocery store and I'm going to call out this grocery store because a lot of people go there. I think they are fairly, uh, well known, but I don't go in here often because sometimes things are often in a disarray. Um, sometimes the, the cashiers are really slow and the lines are long and all of that stuff. But I got in there today and I was just grabbing some trail mix ingredients because I like to make my mix my own trail mix and um, put it in a huge container. So I just pick out everything that I want separately. And this store was Aldi. So I go to the line and miracle of miracles, there is no one in line. And I was like, man, this is great. I'm going to be able to just go up to the cashier and check my stuff out and be ready to go. So I had my box and cause you know, they, you got to pay for everything there. You got to pay to use the grocery cart. I'm like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I don't shop like that in here to, to need the cart. So I had my recyclable box and I had put all my stuff inside of it, set it on the conveyor belt. Now, usually their cashiers will ring your things up very, very quickly. And then they'll rebox your stuff right this is what i was expecting <laughs> well this particular karen <clears throat> envelopian this particular female envelopian um took my things out of the box and she was literally like throwing them into the bottom of the basket that they usually have sitting on the end and i'm looking at her like Okay, I just neatly boxed these things up, put it on the conveyor belt, and you just pulling my stuff out and throwing them into the bottom of the basket, right? So I'm thinking, okay, if she's doing all this, surely she's going to rebox my items that I gave to her very nicely, right? No. <laughs> and I just looked and I said, ma'am, what, what are you doing? <laughs> I said... 
you're not going to you're not going to rebox that. You're not going to literally put them back into the box that you just took them out of. It it was a very simple process. Oh, no, no, no. Uh we, you know, well, we just we just have to, you know, it, it it's it's more for me to pull it out and and ring it up. I'm like, "Ma'am, I brought you my things in a box. You threw them into the bottom of this basket." And you're not gonna rebox my items. Well, uh, I, I, I don't feel like. You know what I said? I said what I'm not gonna do is go back and forth with you about this. I said it's okay. It's quite all right. I know exactly how to respond to people like you. <laughs> you should have seen. <laughs> you should have seen. The look on her face and how quickly she shifted. And then she started trying to put my stuff in the in the container. I said, no. Mm-mm. No, you already expressed to me that you this is that this is not your job, even though it is. You already expressed that to me. So I'm gonna box my things and I know how to deal with you. I know how to deal with people like you. I sure do. Cause that's like I have time today. <laughs> So I called, I called corporate. I said, here's my receipt number. Here's the name of the cashier that, that was um, working this aisle. Here's what she did. Here's why I don't come in y'all store very often because nobody has time for this. When there is inflation of all sorts of goods for no apparent reason, Nobody has time to be disrespected on top of spending their hard-earned money and spending more money than these items are worth because y'all keep raising the prices. <laughs> so <clears throat> that was how that went. And I said, you know what? This is the love day too? Come on. On love day, you're going to show me everything but love? I mean, you would have thought... I was in I was in Alabama somewhere. The way she was responding, and she was very, very nasty in her attitude and her behavior and her disposition. She was one of those what we would call suspected. As if as in, I really don't want to serve black people, but I know I have a job that requires me to be in contact with everybody. Yeah, it was that kind of an experience. You could sense her dislike that she didn't want to serve me yeah because the person that came behind me had no problem with so i expressed these things to the at the corporate level and what i want to encourage you to do especially if you are a black person in this society is don't waste your energy do not waste your energy going back and forth with people about what you know is not right just take the necessary recourse, report them, <laughs> and let it be that. Because what we're not doing back and forth in 2023, we're not going back and forth with people. Mm-mm, 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 mm-mm. I was like, mm-mm, no ma'am. <laughs> no ma'am, you can keep that energy over there. You can keep it somewhere else. And I told the people, I'm like, listen, Talking to y'all about her is time I can't get back. And time is money for me. So I'm going to need you to fix it.
So, yeah, they're working on fixing that. So, uh, shout out to Aldi for getting on that. And, uh, yeah, that's my, that was my relationship moment on yesterday. That in the midst of all of the good energy and good vibes and celebration of love that somebody chose to get out of the universe's response to me. I'm like, mm-mm, mm-mm, Jesus Tariq. This is not the energy I put out in the world, so I don't expect this energy coming at me at all. So thank you for fixing that. And thank you, headquarters, for doing what you do to make sure that I don't encounter her again. Yeah, they were appalled by her behavior. I'm like, mm-hmm, I need you to be more than appalled. I need you to fix it. So we are back in the book. What happened to you? Conversations on trauma, resilience, and healing. If we have time today, we will get back into the historically black American icons who attended HBCUs. And we'll try to read uh, another icon from there today. But we want to get back into this conversation about wisdom, post-traumatic wisdom. We last ended with Ali's story. And Oprah says this. Ali's story and the way you describe the healing power of the intergenerational clans from thousands of years ago makes me think of growing up in Kosciusko, Mississippi and how the church was the center point of our life. We just talked about that two minutes ago with how people would welcome in strangers in a faith-based setting. Put some hearts on the screen if you ever attended a church service and you were greeted with either greeters at the front door, greeters or ushers, <clears throat> if you were ever um, asked to stand in a congregation and introduce yourself, or if someone's congregation sang a welcome song to you to welcome you as a visitor to their ministry. So she says this, every week I'd be there for Sunday school followed by the 11 o'clock service. We go home and my grandmother would cook before we returned for another service at three o'clock. Then Baptist union training at five or six. On Wednesday nights, we go for a prayer service and choir rehearsal. At three and a half years old, I was speaking in front of the congregation the hours I spent in that little white church by the red dirt road certainly form the spiritual foundation for my life. So for all the people who be saying, Oprah don't be knowing nothing about God. <laughs> for all the people who like, Oprah is a demon. Because you know, she gets that title too, right? Her and Beyonce and Rihanna and a whole bunch of them. Somebody posted a couple of days ago, Rihanna sitting in church with her, I think her, her child and her husband in a church service. So these people do go to church. Beyonce, as a matter of fact, rebuilt her home church 
in, I think, Houston. She didn't use the building funds to do it. She used her money and helped them to rebuild their entire church. <laughs> Just goes to show you can't always go by what you hear about people. You know, that whole don't judge a book by its cover kind of deal. And understanding that these people are performers. They perform a persona. Something to think about. Oprah says, later, when I was living in Nashville with my father, I accepted a job as a reporter at a television station in Baltimore. As I was preparing to leave my family and the life I knew, my father's advice to me was find a church home. At the time, I thought it was because he wanted to make sure I kept Jesus in my life. Looking back now, though, as we talk about the healing power of relationships, I realized it wasn't just about finding a place of worship. It was about finding a community and discovering true and lasting connection in a new city. <clears throat> in those days, church was everything. It was your counselor, your nurturer, your comforter, and your refuge. The idea of going to therapy wasn't even discussed. If you needed help, you went to church. As I said, we weathered together. It was your church family that made sure you had a place to go for Sunday dinner. They were the ones who visited you when you were sick or passed around the collection plate if you could not put food on the table. The church was even where we created that healing sense of rhythm. Our music connected and lifted us. For many people, church isn't their thing. But everyone needs people who can listen, who can be present, and make them feel heard and seen. As we're talking, I see that a key to healing from trauma is finding your church home, finding your people, finding your community. This can help build resilience, post-traumatic healing, and ultimately post-traumatic wisdom. It can help you become wise. Where is the organ? <clears throat> where is the tambourine I don't ever hear anybody quoting this part of what Oprah says anybody ever heard that quoted anybody ever seen that quoted about by Oprah what she said about how everybody needs to find their community everybody needs to find the place where people speak to them where people can identify with them where, as she said, people who are willing to listen, people who are willing to be present, and people who make you feel heard and seen. That's a part of what we do with We Dare Squad. Um, some people are actively attending a church service. Some people do not. But what we do in community is we listen to each other. We pray for each other. We celebrate each other. I think I got some more celebrations to do because I think I saw something else today. But it's all about, as she said, that post-traumatic wisdom that you can gain out of your community. Sometimes people are going through things that they don't have to necessarily go through and experience themselves, but they can learn from people who've already been that route. And how does that happen? That happens when we talk with each other. That happens when we share our experiences with each other. That happens when we communicate with each other. So if I've had a really bad experience with something like I did with Aldi's, <laughs> I can share with you my experience and I can say, hey, 
You don't have to take people being rude and disrespectful. You don't have to say, well, that's just the way America is. No, there's recourses for that. Especially if you work in the public sector. There's a a way that people should respond when they're working in public sectors and dealing with all kinds of people. Now, Dr. Perry says, it is impossible to be truly wise without some real life hardship. And we cannot develop post-traumatic wisdom without weathering, and most importantly, as you point out, without weathering together. Social connection builds resilience and resilience helps create post-traumatic wisdom. And that wisdom leads to hope. Hope for you and hope for others witnessing and participating in your healing. Hope for your community. Absolutely. A healthy community is a healing community. And a healing community is full of hope because it has seen its own people weather, survive, and thrive. The first time I saw how a healing community can work was almost 30 years ago. The experience completely shifted the way I think about therapeutics. I started to understand that most therapeutic experience, most healing happens outside of formal therapy. Most healing happens in community. Now that's a t-shirt. Most healing happens in community. And this is something that I have tried to um, communicate to some people who focus solely on individual one-to-one therapy, which is good. I recommend therapy. I do. But here's what I also know and understand. I also know and understand that the way that Black community operated in the past was a part of therapeutic healing. It was a part of your healing. I'm going to say it one more time. It was a part of your healing. To be able to go to your grandma's house or go to your auntie's house or go to your neighbor's house down the road or if something was bothering you, there was that one person in your neighborhood oftentimes that people would go to that people would talk to about their problems. I know growing up, I would oftentimes... Um, when I would visit my grandmother, um, not my mother's mother, she was more of the mission type. She was literally throw me in that, in that three wheel buggy and she would go to people. My other grandmother was more of what I would say and call the community sage. In other words, people would come to her. So when I was at her house all day long, all, literally all day long, <laughs> it was like she was holding appointments. Somebody would knock on the door. They'd come in. They'd sit down. How you doing? Her her nickname was Miss Tot. How you doing, Miss Tot? Oh, I'm good. How are things going with you? And it was always sort of, um, you know, my, my grandmother, she dealt with diabetes. So she didn't really go out much as she got older. So it was always people coming by, right? thinking that they were coming to see how she was doing. But then they would sit and then they would talk and they would share. And then we would, I would, I would kind of listen to her get to the root of why they had come to visit. And so whether it was a work situation, whether it was something with their children, whether it was something happening 
um, with their relationship, with their love relationship, whatever it was, my grandmother had a way of drawing it out of people. And I would just be there sitting at her feet. <laughs> I wouldn't say a word because guess what? It wasn't my business. But I was paying attention. I was listening to how she would talk to people. I was listening to the counsel that she would give. And many times she would tell people, listen. And she literally had a plaque on the wall when you walked in her house. <laughs> if you don't really have anything good to say about people, don't bring it in here. So she was always kind of bringing people back to, you know, let's focus on you. Let's focus on how you're doing. Let's focus on what you're doing in the situation. Um, and she was very good at telling people, listen, you don't have to trash other people. Like you don't have to talk bad about them in order to express what is, what is wrong or what is happening to you. Just tell me about what's happening to you. How does what's happening make you feel? And my grandmother would do this every day. People would come by. <laughs> and I'm and I was just looking at her like in amazement like this is what people do and it was it got to the point where people were literally taking their you know how people take their work break or their work vacations or whatever they were taking their their vacation time and traveling to South Florida <laughs> to come sit in my grandmother's living room for a week every single day of their vacation and then they would leave. And I'm just like, this is some powerful stuff. That literally people would take off work or go on their vacation, spend their vacation time sitting in my grandmother's living room in the hood. But this was not, I mean, we lived in the hood hood. <laughs> you know, gunshots, helicopters overhead kind of hood. So to see that. Growing up was a huge experience for me. And I think that today still shapes how I deal with people in general. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes people say, well, the black community, they don't believe in, in mental health and mental wellness. I'm like, yes, we do. Who told you that we don't believe in mental health and mental wellness? Just because we don't practice it in the way that is Eurocentric does not mean that we don't believe in mental health and mental wellness. And I really need black people to stop regurgitating that white supremacist speaking point because what you're doing is you are nullifying the ways in which we heal in community. When, you're, when people go to church, and they do what's called shouting. That is a form of healing in community. How do I, why do I say that? Because many times, sometimes, yes, people are shouting because they are have joy. But a lot of times people are shouting because they're in pain. So whether they say, you know what, I'm not feeling well in my body, but I'm going to get up and I'm going to give God praise. I'm going to get up and I'm going to move my body. I'm going to get up and I'm going to get my endorphins kicking. And they get up and praise God. 
Or they say, you know, I'm not feeling so good about my situation, but I know that if I can just give God a praise, I know everything's going to be all right. They are literally releasing endorphins in their own selves so that they can shift their own mind and physiology. Now we call it shouting, (laughs) but that's what's happening. But how do we know that they're healing in community? We know they're healing in community because guess what? If you in a black church, it's going to be at least one person that's going to get up and shout with you. (laughs) Most people are not going to let you shout alone. If I'm telling the truth, put some hearts on the screen. So if you are really shouting and you giving God your all and you going, you, you, you going in, as we say, you're going in, somebody is going to come alongside you. And we've seen these videos. Somebody's going to come alongside you and they're going to, they're going to, uh, you know, wrap their arm around your shoulder and they're going to join you in the dance. And then somebody else going to come on your other side. And they're going to wrap their arm around your other shoulder and they're going to keep joining. They're going to join you in the dance. Now, you're going to tell me that that's not healing in community just because y'all don't do that. See, we have to evaluate and we have to stop letting people tell us how we're supposed to heal. Most healing happens in community. In February of 1993, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives attempted to raid on attempted a raid on David Koresh's Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. Four ATF members and six Davidians were killed in the raid. Over the next three years, the FBI negotiated the release of 21 of the children in the compound over three days. Then these releases stopped and on 50 and a 51 day siege ensued. It ended with an FBI assault that precipitated a Davidian lit fire, which killed 75 Davidians, including the remaining 25 children. Several days after the initial ATF raid, I was asked by officials of the state of Texas to lead a clinical team to care for the released Davidian children. This is Dr. Perry speaking. They were all housed in a single large cottage on the Methodist home campus in Waco. They ranged in age from 3 to 13, a mix of boys and girls. They had been in an hours-long firefight, and they had seen members of their community die. Each of them had been separated from family and handed over to complete strangers, usually armed FBI agents in SWAT gear. In the days before we took over, the children experienced chaos. Each day was unpredictable and each child interacted with dozens of strange people, some of them armed. While growing up, the children had been indoctrinated to believe that all non-Davidians were Babylonians intent on destroying David Koresh and all of his followers. So here were these children torn away from everything they knew, being cared for by the people they believed would kill them. Bottom line, this was a group of acutely traumatized children. In the first days we worked with them, the children exhibited various acute post-traumatic effects. For example, as a group, the average resting heart rate was 132, whereas normal would have been less than 90. There was some pressure to do therapy with these children. 
but I knew that talking with dysregulated children was not going to be effective. I felt our first task should be to bring structure and predictability to their day. We started to make the uncontrollable and unpredictable more controllable and predictable. I limited unnecessary access to the children, no more new adults. We had group meetings in the morning to outline the day and in the evening to review the day. At the meetings, the children had opportunities to ask questions. We had playtime, quiet time, and meals, always at the same time. And we gave the children multiple opportunities to make choices about what they ate, what they played with, how they spent their quiet time. Each day after the children went to bed, our team would meet. We would talk about each child and any member of the team who had any interaction with that child was asked to describe it. I logged these brief interactions on a spreadsheet hour by hour. Many were brief therapeutic moments. A child would ask, what do you think will happen to my mom? Then listen to a reassuring comment and drift back to play. The children were controlling when and how they talked about the traumatic events they'd experienced. They were also seeking safe, stable, and physically regulating interactions. Push me on the swing, let's draw. As I added up the interactions, I saw that despite no formal therapy sessions, the children were getting over two hours of therapeutic interaction each day. By the end of three weeks with our team, the children were much more regulated. The group heart rate had dropped below 100 into the normal range. They were more interactive and talkative and the therapeutic interactions became more verbal. One of the most important observations was that these children needed different kinds of therapeutic interaction at different times. They knew this even better than we did. A child who wanted quiet, nurturing interactions would seek out one of our staff who was a really good listener and be able to sit quietly without talking. Not easy for most adults to do. When this, this same child wanted to play, they would seek out a member of our team who was younger and more playful. When they wanted reassurance from an authority figure, they would come to me. Each of us had a unique set of personality characteristics, and at any given moment, our particular strength might be just what one of the children needed. No one person, no single therapist, could be all things for all the children who were each at different stages of development and in different stages of regulation. Our clinical structure at Waco reminded me of the importance of developmental diversity for children. Ooh, Lord. <laughs> developmental diversity for children. Think of the diversity within a small multifamily, multi-generational clan. Children growing up had numerous adults or older children who could model, teach, nurture, discipline, and care for them. Each person in the clan had a unique set of strengths, the right person at the right time. No single person was expected to provide all of the emotional, social, physical, or cognitive needs of the developing child. Now, maybe you didn't grow up in a big family like I did. Again, I grew up in a family with 22 aunts and uncles. I had plenty of adults, healthy personalities to pull from. I get that everybody doesn't have that experience, but I will say, as he said here, that when you do have those numerous adults around you, you're pulling from people who can model and teach you certain things, right? So my dad's brothers, they modeled for me manhood, what manhood looked like, 
They modeled what stability looked like. Um, they modeled what caring for your children looked like. They modeled protection and what protection looked like. Um, my favorite uncle, and I try not to say favorite, but I, I have favorites. I do. <laughs> I call him my favorite uncle because he spent, I would say out of all my uncles, he spent the most time, like took up the most time with me. And he was younger and he was like closer to, I guess, my age, so to speak, because when I was like 12, 13, he was in college. And so one of my first experiences with college, one of my first experiences with um, a, a university really was with my uncle. And I will never forget that he took me on his college campus with his um, girlfriend there, girlfriend that he was with at the time they eventually married. But that was like my first taste of college life at 13 and I realized now how rare that was, um, especially living in the hood for him to wind up attending college and then saying, hey, you wanna spend a weekend with me at college to see what we do? And I'm like, uh, yeah, 13, getting to go to a college campus? Come on, 13? 13 think about what you were thinking about at 13 I was a little I was I was on the borderline boy crazy at 13 so college <laughs> and I was really really tall at 13 I was like five seven five eight so when he took me on college he had to like really like he was very protective to say um she is not a college student <laughs> she is 13. Don't even look away or I'm going to have to hurt you. That's all. <laughs> so being able to get that experience, being able to hang out with my, my younger uncle and his girlfriend and their college friends, I actually got a chance to see um, a little bit of college life that was fun because they were really like they would play games and card games and stuff like that. So I saw the fun part of, of the educational life, but I also saw them studying, right? I also saw that, yeah, there's some fun times, but college is a place where you have to like go to school, study and apply yourself. And I think even from that small weekend interaction, because I think he took me twice, from that interaction, it changed the way that I thought about what I wanted to do in the future. Cause I was like, Hmm, if I want to be in this kind of environment, I can't keep doing the stuff I was doing back home. Cause I was, I was something to be reckoned with at 13. <laughs> um, so once I got out of that environment and then I started thinking more seriously about my grades, I realized, Ooh, I've been, I've not been applying myself. I need to, um, I need to get on that. And then I had to play catch up. So one of the um, lessons that I often give students is, hey, if you are playing around and you are not taking your grade seriously, there may come a point where you actually want to pursue certain things 
And you might not be able to because your grades don't cut it. And then you might have to be like me, having to play catch up to make sure that you're in a place where you can make the choices that you want to make in the future or have access to the spaces and places that you want to have access to. So that nurturing, that modeling with my aunts, I saw care, I saw concern, I saw sisterhood, I saw honoring of each other. Now I have a sister, I have one sister, and I'm very thankful that we have a really good relationship with each other. But you can get these things in community, and I am talking really long today. But it's okay. So I want to finish this up. As Dr. Perry says, he says, this is incredibly unlike our modern worlds. So think about all the times in your life where maybe you've had extended family, you've engaged with extended family, whether that's through maybe holiday gatherings. I know when I was younger, my family had family reunions. So I was meeting people across several generations, people across several states. I knew I had family beyond my immediate family. He said, we expect a single working mother to be the one to throw the baseball with her eight-year-old, to rock the newborn, to read to the three-year-old, and cook a nutritious meal, help with the homework, do the laundry, get everybody to bed, then wake up and get them all ready for childcare and school so she can go work all day only to rush home to do it all again, all alone. And we got, it looked like we have a whole genre of blame the black single mother going on. When if we will look at our own history, black single mothers were not doing things all by themselves. They just were not. If we will be honest, there was someone helping at some point in time. I was raised by a single mother, but I had a whole tribe of aunts and uncles that pitched in that when I was having my boy crazy summer, <laughs> they said, give her to me, <laughs> give her to me because she's not going to, she's, she, she's, she's not going to survive in this house with you, give her to me, give her to me. Yeah, I had one of those summers where my aunt just literally had to come and kidnap me from my mama because my mama was done with me <laughs> and I was done with her. And yeah, I don't think I was going to make it past that summer had I kept going in the, re in the way that I was going um, in responding to adults authority yeah so we have created in the modern world this idea that you're supposed to do it all by yourself when in actuality if we look at the way our communities were formed we were not doing things all by ourselves 
I have two more sections and then I'm going to stop and I'm going to open it up. We're not going to get to the black icons today. We'll touch on them tomorrow. Oprah responds. She needs people to step up. People who support her, give her some breaks, step in and do some of those things with her children. We're not meant to be isolated and alone. We're actually meant to work together. So when a single mom is living on a limited income, trying to manage maybe four children, trying to be mother and father, and she feels overwhelmed or feels like it's impossible to do it all, it's because it is impossible. It is an unfair expectation of our society. No other society in the history of this planet has ever asked a single adult to provide the physical, social, emotional, and material needs of multiple children by themselves. You're not meant to raise children isolated and alone. Absolutely not. We are meant to distribute caregiving among the many adults in our band, our community. In a, temp in a typical hunter-gatherer clan, for every child under six, there were four developmentally more mature individuals who could model, discipline, nurture, and instruct the child. That is the four to one ratio. Four developmentally mature individuals for each child under six. We now think that one caregiver for four young children or one to four is enriched. That is one sixteenth of what our developing social brain is looking for. That is relational poverty. My, my, my. Relational poverty to only have one adult for every four children. And guess what? I can tell you from experience in the classroom that the classroom ratio many times is one adult to 15 children. In middle school for me, it was one adult, myself, with maybe an assistant that occasionally came around once or twice a month with 35 children in a class. And I knew from that, <laughs> there is no way in the world I was, I was giving my students everything that they needed. There was no way in the world I was devoting enough attention to the needs of each student in my class with 35 children in a class. 35 different souls and 35 different personalities. And people are like, why didn't Jesus choose more than 12? Are you kidding? <laughs> that's my, that's my talk for today. Again, the book is What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing. Pastor Ben, come on in because I know you got something to say. I know you have something to say. Bibliophile you're always welcome to click on the camera and join me in conversation. If you are listening by Anchor, I want to thank you for your time and attention today. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness, so continue to go out and be light. And also remember, no weapon formed against your melanated skin shall prosper. Be blessed.